Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this day, Lord, and we come in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you for that reminder in your word that your house, Lord, your dwelling place, that you chose for yourself, God, you named it a house of prayer and not merely a house of preaching. So, Lord, we come to you right now, God, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to give you our hearts sincerely, Lord, in prayer, just like we've done in praise and in worship. And God, we tell you today, Lord, in your presence, God, that we need you, Lord. We are are a needy people. We need you. You're our Father in heaven, and we are nothing apart from you, God. God, we thank you for every week that we gather together as a local church, and you remind us of your glorious gospel. And you allowed us to even sing it to you just then, Lord. And you reminded us that you are the Lord. You are the one who is over us, reigning over us as king. And yet at the same time, you are the Lamb, Lord Jesus, that died for our sins. You are our Lord and you are our Lamb. And Lord, every time you remind us of this glorious gospel, we're reminded of why we love you. And how much we love you, Lord. And that we love you because you first loved us. And every time we're reminded of your gospel, Lord, we're reminded that we want to serve you, Lord. We want to respond to you with thanks and with gratitude and with service, Lord Jesus, the one who gave everything for us. And we want to be like you, Lord. You you declare yourself to be holy and you command us to be holy. And we want to be like you, God. And we know that you've used the preaching of your word in every generation of church history to create a holy people set apart for your purposes in the world. And so we pray, God, that you would be pleased to fill up this time today and our whole church, Lord, this entire local church, fill us with the Holy Spirit. God, come visit today the preaching of your word. We want to be like you, Lord. We want to be encouraged. We want to be more convicted of our sins. We want to be more like You, Lord Jesus. And so we ask You, Lord, for that gift as our Father in Heaven. Come meet with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29. Now, one of, the, one of the amazing things about the Bible, as you begin to read through the Bible, is that it doesn't hide the sin of the characters. You read about these characters, and maybe you would think, you know, on the front end, you know, that they're these godly, awesome people, but as you read Scripture, you find out that the Bible doesn't hide the sin of its characters, and we see this from generation to generation. As the faith is passed down from generation to generation, you see this mixture in the biblical characters. You see these godly traits in men and women, faith and righteousness and godliness, things that we would imitate. And in these same men and women, you see glaring failures and sins and shortcomings and weaknesses, and things that we shouldn't imitate, things that we should turn from. 
And that's interesting for this reason, that if the Bible was just a bunch of made-up stuff, this is the kind of stuff that you would scrub from the record. That doesn't look so good for us. We'll get rid of that part. The sins of the characters. Men like Abraham, men like Moses, men like David, men like the Apostle Paul, men like Peter. The Bible doesn't hide the sin of its characters. In fact, it does the opposite. Scripture takes great care to very intentionally portray every human being, every character that it presents to us as a great sinner in need of a great Savior. And as you read the Bible, you understand that there's only one hero in Scripture, and His name is Jesus, the Righteous One, the Holy One of God. And so you could call this attribute of Scripture, it's it's historical honesty. It's just reality. The best of men are men at best. You've heard that saying in recent weeks. Even the most godly saints in the history of of the church. They're, they're men and women of mixture. Their feet are partly iron and partly clay. Partly righteous and partly sinful. Historical honesty. And because this is the kind of book that we're dealing with when we read Scripture, we have to learn how to read the Bible with this twofold grid. Okay? And that twofold grid is the things that Scripture describes as descriptive only. And then the stories that Scripture present to us as prescriptive. That's the twofold grid. As we read about the biblical characters, we need to learn what is descriptive in Scripture and what is prescriptive in Scripture. Now, most of us do this intuitively as we read the Bible. We read about this failure in, in, in this man or woman of faith, and we think intuitively, okay, don't do that part of their life, but imitate this part of their life. But I think these categories are worth putting some names on and and getting these um, in. Descriptive and prescriptive. Okay, Just because the Bible is describing that something happened does not mean that the Bible is prescribing go and do likewise. They're two different things. The historical honesty of Scripture, everything that Scripture describes is not automatically prescribed that we should go and do likewise. I'll give you just one example of this. There are many ways that those two categories can help you. One example of this would be earlier in Genesis, we read about the daughters of Lot. Shake your head if you remember that story. Daughters of Lot. We're told about this wicked story, okay, about these daughters that, that go into their father. They, have, they, they, they manipulate and, and they enter into sexual relationship with their father. And the Bible, this is, right, this is one of the things that you get rid of that stuff if you're making stuff up. But it doesn't do that. We have that in the record. It's describing these things really happen. But we all intuitively know as we read that, that story of the daughters of Lot, the Bible's not telling us to do that. This is not prescriptive. In fact, the way it describes that event is is that this is wicked with with, uh, sinful, not only a sinful act, but also sinful consequences. This twofold grid can also help you in some of the um, 
charismatic aspects of Scripture, some of the miracles of Scripture, that when Jesus stands up in the boat and He commands the wind and the waves to obey Him, that really happened. The Bible is describing something that really happened. But it is not prescribing something for us to go and do likewise. That every time there's a hurricane about to hit the Gulf Coast, we just go stand on the seashore and command the winds and the waves to obey us. You see how this grid can help you. What is the Bible describing and what is the Bible prescribing? Now, this twofold grid is important because some of the modern day cults appeal to the biblical character's practice of polygamy and they read it as something that the Bible prescribes us to go and do likewise. Because godly men of old have practiced polygamy, which is one man having multiple wives, and we saw that earlier in Genesis with Abraham. We're going to see it again in our passage today. And the cults read this as prescriptive. Because these godly men did this, we should go and do likewise. Now, there are many um, different sects that teach this, but the one that hits closest to home is the black Hebrew Israelites. We have members in our church that have been affected by, by, by this in their background of how they came to, to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even, even right now, still have family members involved with this cult. We have members in our church that as they have preached the gospel in this city, that they have come against these teachings. This is something that's not just way out there. This is something that's in our city. And, and the way that they read this, this polygamy in Abraham's life, for example, it didn't happen in Isaac's life, but we're going to see it in Jacob's life today. They read this as prescriptive, something that we should do, whereas what we're actually supposed to do is read it the opposite way, that the Bible is merely describing something that happened, and it's not putting it forth for us as an example to follow. In fact, when the Bible describes these polygamous marriages, it also goes on to describe catastrophic effects of polygamy. Okay? That's what you read around polygamy. You see it in Abraham's life. You see it in Jacob's life. You see it in Solomon's life. Never ever in all of Scripture is it held forth for us as a blessing from God. Every time Scripture describes it, it shows us that the effects of this sin are catastrophic. They're discord. They're not harmony. They're not peaceful. This is not a blessing from God. And our passage today is going to be one of the clearest places in all of Scripture to show us the catastrophic effects of distorting the gift of marriage. God gave us the gift of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. One man... One woman in a lifelong marriage covenant. And every time we, sinful human beings, distort that gift, there are disastrous consequences that follow. So we're about to read this passage together. And one of the labels that should be um, right across this passage is, is, Kids, don't try this at home. Okay, Don't try this at home. Descriptive, not prescriptive. Now... One of the main themes that's running through the book of Genesis, and we've mentioned this several times, is that the covenant promises have been given to Abraham and his family. And by the time we get to Genesis 29, those covenant promises of chosen land 
and chosen offspring, they passed their way down to Abraham's grandson named Jacob. And what we've said two weeks ago, we, we started into this, to this narrative, and we said if he is going to receive that seed promise, that offspring promise from Yahweh, from the Lord God, then there's two things that Jacob needs. One is a wife. We talked about that two weeks ago. He went to get him a wife. He came back with two. Okay, We're going to jump in on that narrative. And what we're going to see in this passage is God's going to provide for him that second piece. Not only a wife, but also sons. And so we're going to see God reach into this polygamous mess that Jacob has found himself in the midst of, and God's going to work it for good. God is going to graciously keep His promise, even in spite of human sin. Let's read our text together, beginning in Genesis 29, chapter, uh, chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son and said, This time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and then she ceased bearing. First verse of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And then she said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived, and she she bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice, and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again, and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. And when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she named his name Asher. Verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, 
Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And so Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. And when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Ishakar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Verse 22, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son, and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. May the Lord add to me another son. And so what we have in this narrative is the same two themes we saw in the previous narrative in Genesis. What do we see in this passage of Scripture that we just read together? Well, we see two things. We see more human sin. Amen? We see more sin in this passage. More rebellion against God. And then at the same time, more human sin. We see more of God's grace in the midst of human sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so we have these two sisters... And this struggle in this passage, and the best way I can describe it, and I don't even know if this exists, but I call this the birth war. That they're striving against each other to see who can birth the most babies. This is how they're trying to achieve supremacy. So you have these two sisters, Rachel and Leah. And Scripture tells us here that they're filled with envy, and this envy is causing them to compete with one another. And it's interesting because neither is content with what they've been given by God. So consider both of them. Rachel has been given a husband who loves her. And she's not content with that gracious gift from God, with having a husband who loves her. Leah also receives gifts from God in this text. Leah is given a multitude of children. It's a gracious gift from God, but neither is content with the lot that they have received from God, and both are envying and coveting what the other sister has. So Rachel has the love of her husband, but she's envying, she's filled with envy, and she's coveting the children that Leah has. And then Leah also. Leah has the multitude of children, but she's envying and she's coveting the love of Jacob that Rachel has. And they're filled with envy towards one another. They're discontent. They're filled with envy. And this 
this birth, this strife, this, this birth war. Horrific passage of Scripture. I want you to think about how sad this is in a family. Okay? I want you to think about what happens at Grace Community Church when we announce that a baby's born, that a baby's coming. We throw these parties in these showers before a baby's coming, and then when a baby's born, we're excited about this stuff. We receive these children as gracious gifts of God, and we celebrate them as such, and we should, rightly so. But I want us to see how things have come in this depraved, polygamous marriage that these births of these children, they're not even celebrated for their own sake. Okay? These children, are, they become mere pawns in the story to stick jabs at the other sister. So instead of naming your kids something beautiful and God-honoring, they're naming their kids these little barbs that basically say, I just beat you. Okay? The children in this story are mere pawns being fed by this envy and this rivalry. And to our polygamous Friends, we, we, we hold this forward and we say, Oh, the joys of po- polygamy. Behold the joys of polygamy. What, lives of envy, strife, um, using children as pawns, uh, desecrating an entire family. Oh, the joys of polygamy. The marriage you've always dreamed of. Jacob and now his four wives. His four wives. This is nasty Sinful stuff in this text of Scripture. And the Bible doesn't hide it from us. doesn't hide it from us. And we'll talk more about that, that this actually becomes the foundation of the nation of Israel. So we'll start in verse 30 of chapter 29. In verse 30 of chapter 29, we are told that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. He loved Rachel more than Leah. And that phrase helps us to understand the hatred that is mentioned in verse 31. This is a comparative hatred that that Leah was hated only in comparison to how much Rachel was loved by Jacob. He loved one more than the other. And Scripture tells us that Leah was the unwanted wife. She was the hated wife. And let's not forget the context Rightly so, right? Rightly so, right? Would you find your heart warm and mushy towards the woman who pretended to be her sister on your wedding night? After you waited seven years to marry your beloved bride, she pretends in the marriage bed to be her sister Rachel. Would you come out of that exchange just filled with love towards this woman? She's the despised, unwanted wife. Her her name is Leah. And yet we see that God moves in this family. God moves in this this polygamous marriage in verse 1. And we're told that when the Lord moves, He opens wounds in this story. And by His sovereign choice, and this is something that we're forced to deal with all over Scripture, God chooses to open the womb of the hated wife, Leah, and not the loved wife, Rachel, it's the hated wife Leah that's favored by God. Now, before the story ends, Rachel is also shown grace by God. But Leah, the hated one, is favored by God. And God gives her four sons as this passage begins. 
And there's a word play, if you look at your footnotes in your ESV Bible, there's a word play on, all, on every one of these names that when, the na- when they name the kid, the son, the name means something. That's the etymology of the word. It means something. There's something that we're supposed to understand there. And so her firstborn son comes and she names him Reuben. And these names help us to understand the story. The name Reuben means a son. A son. And we're told in verse 32, we're getting insight into to Leah's heart. And this is, this is sad, pathetic stuff in a marriage that she, 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 she says, See a son. And she's thinking this question, that, that now, now my husband will love me. I've, I've given him what he wants. I've given him a son. And maybe now my husband will love me. Second child comes, a son named Simeon. And his name means heard, heard. And Leah names this son that, that she has been crying out to Yahweh. She's been crying out to the Lord. And this son is given that Yahweh has seen her in this condition of hatred. And Yahweh gives her another son named Simeon. She's heard by God. Third son comes. Leah names him Levi. And that word means attached. And you see this desperate lady, this desperate woman. And and, and she's unloved by her husband. And the third son comes and she's got this question in the back of her mind that maybe this time... Maybe this time, maybe because of this son, my husband will love me. Maybe now he will be attached to me. Do you see the envy there? Rachel's the loved one. She's the one that Jacob has pulled close. But Leah is the spurned one. And then we come to this fourth son, Judah. And that name means praise. Praise. And for a brief moment in this chapter, and for a very brief moment, we're, th- this son describes that, that Leah has ceased striving against her sister for just a moment, and she says, this time I will praise the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. The previous three names, she's seeking the, the favor, the love, and the affection of her husband. But when Judah comes, she says, this time I'm going to praise the Lord. She's the favored wife of Jacob. Four sons. And then we come to chapter 30, verse 1. And we see Rachel's response to Leah having these children. And we're told right in the middle of verse 1 that she is envious. She is filled with envy. And this is not just a little bit envious, like, you know what, I'm content with my life, but I kind of wish I had her life too. She says it this way in verse 1, I would rather be dead if I'm denied these children. That's how envious Rachel is. She would rather die than be barren. She says to her husband, give me children or I die. Now there's a word for that in Scripture. We call that idolatry. Okay, We call that idolatry. That the desire to have children is a good and godly desire, provided that that desire is in the right place in your heart. And what's happened in Rachel's life is she has this desire for children that has been exalted to this place of supremacy in her life to where she can't get these kids that she desires. She says, I'd rather be dead. This is idolatry in Rachel's life. She demands from her husband only what God can give. She says, give me children or I die. Now, 
The Lord has shown great kindness to her sister Leah. And let's remember for a moment who that is. And, and get yourself in Rachel's position for just a moment. This is her sister that pretended to be her on her wedding night. Okay? Not just like texting her boyfriend on, on the phone pretended to be her sister. She went to the marriage bed and consummated a marriage with Jacob pretending to be Rachel. She is Leah the schemer. She is Leah the deceiver. Leah the pretender. And yet, Leah the schemer is favored by God. She's blessed by God. She schemes, she deceives, and yet she is shown favor and blessing from God. And that's not the first time we've seen that theme in the book of Genesis, right? That's exactly what we saw in Jacob's life. Leah is like Jacob. Jacob was the schemer. We remember this, the scandalous grace of God. He's the scheming deceiver who walks away with God's blessing. And we remember that story. One of the things we learned from that story is God is gracious to whomever He will be gracious. Grace is not something that you earn. Grace is not God's response to godly men and women. Grace is unmerited kindness from God. And, and, and Jacob was shown grace by God. And here we see Leah, the scheming pretender who defiled the marriage bed by pretending to be her sister, is blessed by God. And in fact, she's so blessed by God that in this passage of Scripture, she is chosen by God to be the instrument that brings forth two of the most prominent tribes in Israel. She brings forth the priestly tribe, and we, we call that tribe the tribe of Levi. That came not from beloved Rachel, but from Leah the schemer. She brings forth, chosen by God, blessed by God, to bring forth the priestly tribe of Israel. And not only that, she's chosen by God to bring forth the royal messianic tribe, the tribe of Judah. And, the, and it's royal and messianic because this is, of the twelve tribes of Israel, this is the tribe that Jesus descends from, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy One. The only hero in all of Scripture, Jesus. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But He's not the son of beloved Rachel. In God's sovereign choice, He is the son of scheming Leah. The son of scheming Leah. She is blessed by God to stand in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messianic royal tribe of Judah. This is another example of the scandalous grace of God. That we have to get this stuff out of our minds and out of our hearts. That grace goes to good people. Okay, That is fundamentally the exact opposite of what grace is. If grace were by works or merit, it would not be grace. We have to empty our minds of thinking like that. Grace is God's sovereign, unmerited response of kindness to whom He chooses and he favors Rachel in this story. He blesses those whom he will bless. He, he favors Leah in this story. He blesses those whom he will bless and he shows mercy to whom he will show mercy. This is who the God of the Bible is. This is who the God of the Bible is. You can't manipulate him 
and make Him do what you want Him to do to whoever you want Him to do it. He's gracious to whom He will be gracious. And Rachel hates it. Rachel hates it. Her scheming sister has been shown grace and kindness by the Lord. And she hates it. She's filled with envy to the point that she would rather be dead. But instead of dealing with God, her husband tells us, listen, God is the one who is withholding these children from you. And instead of dealing with God, who has closed her womb, the text tells us that she takes matters into her own hands. And in verse 3, she commands her husband to go into her maidservant, Bilhah. To go into her maidservant, Bilhah. Now, this is where... Um, Rachel could have benefited from those two categories that we started with. What is descriptive in Scripture and what is prescriptive. Because she's not the first one in Scripture who did this, right? You remember Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, had a wife named Sarah. And she had this terrible idea as well. Abraham, since you're not having kids with me, go into my servant Hagar. And how did that turn out in Scripture? Does the Bible hold that forth as something that we should do likewise? Or does the Bible hold that forth as something that's catastrophic in the birth of Ishmael and this competing line with the children of Israel? She didn't learn that lesson. She didn't have that grid. So she does the same thing. She commands her husband to go into her servant, Bilhah. And from Bilhah the maidservant, two additional sons are born. A son named Dan, which means judged, and then a son named Naphtali, Naphtali, which means wrestled, wrestled. Now, I want you to think about how inappropriate these names are to celebrate the birth of a little boy, that you've, that, that, uh, 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 an image bearer of God that you have prayed for, that you have longed for, and you na- you, his name is basically, I just beat my sister. I just wrestled with my sister, and I won. And here you see these children caught in this polygamous game as pawns, fueled by envy. She's gloating over her sister Leah, but this victory, we're told, is short-lived because Leah counters back with her servant Zilpah, and you see this in verse 9. She's got her own servant. She gives her servant to Jacob as a wife. And Zilpah, Zilpah bears two more sons are born. You see, you see how nasty this is. At this point, verse 9, Jacob now has four wives. Four wives. Zilpah, the servant, brings forth two additional sons. The first is named Gad, which means good fortune. And the second is named Happy, uh, Asher, which means happy. These are the word plays on, on all of these words. And most likely what Leah's doing is the same thing that Rachel did. She's rubbing these children into the nose. She's rubbing it into the face of her sister. And she's basically saying, I have better fortune than you. I am more happy than you. This is the envy, the, the competition, the competing. And so her fleshly plan, Rachel's fleshly plan to catch up with her sister has backfired in this passage. It's backfired. 
and yet she still doesn't learn her lesson. She still does not turn to the Lord. And this time, instead of turning to the Lord, beginning in verse 14, she turns in this passage to mandrakes. I want us to read that together in verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now, in the ancient Near East, the mandrakes come from a they're fruit that come from a rare plant. And in the ancient Near East, these mandrakes were thought to induce fertility. And so what Rachel is, is doing in this text, the ancient Near East looked to these mandrakes superstitiously like a magic potion. Take this, have babies. Okay? Take this, eat this fruit, have babies. This is not a scientific thing. That This is a superstitious thing. This is like a magic potion. This is the worldview of the ancient Near East. The fruit was sometimes referred to as love apples. And they're even mentioned in the Song of Solomon in Scripture. And several hundred years later in Greek culture, the goddess, the false goddess Aphrodite was known as the Lady of the Mandrake. Eat this, have babies. That's the potion. That's the superstition that she's involved in. And so what does Rachel do? Rachel sees this potion and she does... You know, and by the time we get to verse 14, something weird has happened. That Rachel is basically serving as Jacob's pimp that determines who he goes into and who he doesn't. And so she sees these mandrakes and she strikes a deal that I will allow Jacob to visit you if you give me these mandrakes, this fertility potion. And what happens is that her plan backfires. Because this exchange, husband for mandrakes, becomes an ironic opportunity for Leah to bear two more sons. Two more sons. The first is named Issachar. His name means wages. This is a play off of that event that just happened. That that God saw this exchange, husband for mandrakes, and God paid me. God gave me my wages. The second son is named Zebulun, and his name means honor. And I hope you see that. Leah is gloating still. She's gloating with the birth of this little boy. God has honored me, and God has dishonored you. And what we learn from this, this, this little part of this story is that God alone, God alone is the Lord of life. Not magic fertility potions like mandrakes. God is the one who must act in Rachel's life. God is the Lord of the womb. He's the God of life and death. He's the God who has life in Himself and He grants life to whoever He chooses. And so Rachel needs God to act in her life and she has to learn that this blessing of children, this gift of life in the womb, it has to come not by manipulating God, like she did through these maidservants, like she's trying to do through taking this fertility potion. But the blessing will come only by trusting God. And this is exactly what happens in this narrative, that she's brought to the end of herself. Both of these opportunities to sidetrack God, they're found to be empty wells, powerless empty wells. And so Rachel gives herself to prayer 
And in verse 22, we read these words, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and opened her womb. God listened to her. That's a response to her prayers to Yahweh, the God of life and death. God opens her womb. She finally bears a son, and then I want you to notice this long-awaited son, all this back and forth, all this scheming on Rachel's end. She finally bears the son. And then I want you to notice what she names the little boy. She called his name Joseph. She called his name Joseph. And that, that name means, may the Lord add another. May the Lord add another. And so I want you to see this picture that we have in this passage. You have this long-awaited child. And I want you to see how deeply rooted discontentment and envy. I want you to see how deeply rooted it is in her life. She waits for this baby. And when the son arrives, the long-awaited son arrives, guess what? All she can think about is what? More, 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 more. May the Lord add another. God gave her this little boy named Joseph. She says, more, more. May the Lord add another. And I want us to understand, as Grace Community Church, as disciples of Jesus Christ, that's how idolatry always works. It always works like that. You get what you crave, and you find out as soon as you hold it in your hand, it doesn't satisfy you. It does not satisfy you. We were made to be satisfied in God alone. And no other created thing can take His place. This is how idolatry works. When we get our idols, we are never satisfied with our idols. Listen to how Ecclesiastes says this. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. You love it... And you, you think, if I could just get it, then I'd be satisfied. And the Bible says, it don't work like that. You love it, you get it, and you're still not satisfied with it. Jeremiah calls these idols, he calls them broken cisterns, the things that we turn to besides the Lord. He calls them broken cisterns that can hold no water. Not only do we turn away from the fountain of living water, the only one who can satisfy us, but when we turn to idols... We turn to broken cisterns that can't even hold water. They can't satisfy us. We can't even drink from them. And ironically, the son that Rachel longs for when she says, may the Lord add another son, ironically, in the book of Genesis, the son that Rachel longs for will be the cause of her death in the book of Genesis. And later in the book of Genesis, and just a few chapters later, we will see God actually gives her another son. His name is Benjamin. But the Bible tells us she dies giving birth to Benjamin. She dies in childbirth. Now, i got to envision in this moment where she's naming Joseph, God, give me another one, give me another one, give me another one. She's not aware that when God gives her another son, she's done. And she stands in eternity to give an account of her life face to face with the God who made her. i got to believe that she didn't know that. She wasn't aware of that detail. That when another son would come, her life would be over. And this is exactly what happens 
with the birth of Benjamin. His name means the son of my sorrow. The son of my sorrow. And so what we see in Rachel's life in Genesis 29 and Genesis 30 is that idolatry is an empty well. And in her case, it was this longing for children. In our case, it could be hundreds of other things. But what we need to understand and what we need to be instructed is if we turn to these things other than the Lord, it'll it'll end up in the same way that it ended up for her, an empty well that cannot satisfy. And so here we have it. Genesis 29, Genesis 30. A nasty, messy, polygamous birth war within the chosen family. This is the holiest family on planet earth at this point in scripture. They are more set apart for the purposes of God than anybody else with a pulse at this particular time. And I want us to get a glimpse of how wicked, how depraved inside this chosen family. Sin. Sin start to finish. Polygamy. Envy. Pawning children. Discontent with the light that God has given. And then side by side with that, I want us to see amazing, amazing grace from God. That this scenario that we just sketched out, God reaches into this filth, this moral mess, and He uses it for good. He works it for good. The grace of God is greater than their sin. And one of the ways that we see this is as we continue to read the book of Genesis and the rest of Scripture, is that these 11 sons that we just read about, this becomes the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? This is where Israel comes from. The 12th will be added when Benjamin's born in just a few chapters. And what this means is that this story, this polygamous, messy birth war, is the beginning of God fulfilling that offspring promise to Jacob. That there will be a chosen seed. There will be a chosen offspring. God has given him wives. God has given him now sons. His grace has worked in the midst of human sin. And this is the very beginning of that fulfillment. And we know that these promises, this, this seed promise, this offspring promise, this is the beginning of the fulfillment, but we know that this promise finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the chosen seed of Abraham. Jesus is the promised descendant from the line of deceitful Leah. She had that son that she named Praise. Judah means praise. Later in the book of Genesis, chapter 49, Judah is going to be given those messianic promises. When, when the blessing is dealt out for the twelve tribes, the twelve sons of Jacob... Judah alone is given this messianic prophecy, these messianic promises that he will have the scepter in his hand. To Judah will be the obedience of all the peoples. From the tribe of Judah will descend the one who will bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. And one of the many ways that we worship the Lord Jesus Christ as we call Him, you are the lion of the tribe of Judah. You are the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen seed. Jesus, you are the offspring. This is the very beginning of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And God uses sinners in this story to bring about His purposes. Leah, the deceiver. And if we look in Matthew chapter 1, in Matthew chapter 1, we see the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If you take just a quick glance at Matthew chapter 1, you'll realize that this is not the only moral blot in the genealogy of Jesus. In other words, the genealogy of Jesus is not this really, really spotless godly family except for this one episode that we're reading about in Genesis 29 and 30. You actually see that this is a theme that God uses sinners to stand in the line that will bring forth the royal seed, Jesus Christ. So you look at that genealogy in Matthew 1, one of the first things that you, you run across is the reference to Judah and Tamar. Judah and Tamar. What a weird story in the book of Genesis, right? And we'll come to that in just a few chapters in Genesis 38. You have Judah. You remember that child of praise? <laughs> the child of praise that's going to bring blessing to the nations. The one who's set apart from his brothers. You know what he does in, in Genesis 38? He goes into what he thinks is a prostitute. He goes to fornicate. And you know what happens in that story? He's been cheating his daughter-in-law out of giving one of his sons to be her husband. And God uses that story of what Judah meant for fornication. God meant it for Tamar to stand in the line that would bring forth the royal seed of Jesus Christ. This is what he does. This is all he has to work with is sinners, ungodly, and yet, his kindness is shown. His unmerited kindness is shown. And not only Judah and Tamar in the lineage of Jesus, we also see in the lineage of Jesus the name Rahab is mentioned. We remember her, right? She's the one that the spies are sent in to the, to the land of Canaan, to the promised land. And guess what she does for a living? She's a prostitute. She is a prostitute. She takes money to give sex, and she does it for a living. And guess what God does? God blesses her. God blesses her. God shows her unmerited kindness. And guess where she is? She's sitting right in the middle of the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Unmerited kindness. God will be gracious to whom He will be gracious. Grace is not something that you merit. You can't. It's a gift that's freely received from God. And it doesn't even stop at Rahab. We come down the lineage, genealogy of Jesus. We, we come to the section that describes David and his son Solomon. And the author of Scripture tells us that Solomon was his son by the wife of Uriah. It's like Scripture doesn't even want to mention her name, but we know that story. We know how that happens. Her name is Bathsheba. She was married to a man named Uriah. David had the man murdered so he could go to bed with his wife. Go to bed with his wife. Their entire union was adulterous start to finish. And what does God do? God shows kindness. God shows grace. And guess where the wife of Uriah stands in the eyes of eternity? In the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She's shown great grace and kindness by God. And this is the picture that we have of Leah in this story, that God 
is gracious. God reaches into the mess and He means it for good. And this is really good news for sinners like you and like me. This is good news for us. That God's call to us is not clean yourself up and come and see me. His call to us is come to me. Come to me. And He's talking to sinners. He's talking to sinners. He offers us grace in the midst of our sin and even in spite of our sin. This is our God. He's a God of grace. He's not looking for people that have it all together. That's the pathway of works. That's the pathway of merit. He's looking for vessels through which He can display His mercy. His mercy. And God can do this. He can treat us better than we, we deserve. He can do this only because of the bloody death of Jesus Christ. Do you understand this? That God is free to be merciful to whom He is merciful. To show great grace and wipe away sin in a moment of time. Why? Because His Son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for our sins. This is, this is the language of Romans Chapter 3, verse 26, commenting back on this bloody death of the Son of God. This payment that Jesus made with His righteous blood to a holy God. Scripture says this way and this way alone, this bloody payment offered by Christ on His cross allows God to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And so let's understand this perfectly. Nobody in eternity, nobody is getting away with sin. Nobody ever is getting away with sin. Sin will be punished. Romans 3 tells us that it will either be be born by us, the punishment of our sin will be born by us, or it was born in the body of Jesus Christ as He was crucified on the cross. On the cross, God showed Himself to be just, the one who punishes sin, and the justifier, the one who freely forgives sinners. The one who freely forgives sinners. So one of the things that this story is supposed to do in our life is I'm convinced that it's supposed to remind us that we come from nothing. We come from nothing. It's a call to humility. It's a call to remember ourselves rightly, to get oriented towards reality. And I don't know a more humbling origin story in all the Bible than the origin of Israel. Behold, the foundation of the chosen nation of Israel. A nasty, polygamous mess. The origin story of Israel. And I think one of the things of why this is recorded in Scripture, if you think about the original audience, of the Pentateuch. This was written by Moses as the, 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 the people of Israel are going into the promised land and you begin to scratch your head. You know, why do you want the people of Israel to know this? Why do you want them to know this story? Okay, scrub this stuff from the record. And I'm convinced that the reason why God wanted Israel to know this story is that He wanted them to remember that they came from nothing. That they came from nothing. That they, that they came into existence from moral chaos. Not from being better than any other nation, but from moral chaos. 
And they have been chosen by God because they have been chosen by God. God has set His love on Israel because He loves Israel. Not because they have merited His love. In fact, if we turn to Deuteronomy 9, God tells Israel the same thing three times in three, pa- three verses of Scripture that you are my people not because you're awesome. Not because you're awesome. Let's read that together. Deuteronomy chapter 9, beginning in verse 4. God says this, Do not say in your heart, After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is giving them from before you driving them out from before you, that He may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. God wants His people to know where they came from. God wants His his people, Israel, to remember, you're nothing without me. You are nothing without me. You have no righteousness. You're nothing without me. It's not because of your righteousness that you have been blessed by God. And the same way with Israel is the same way with us. You are not blessed by the Lord. You are not a Christian because of your righteousness. You are a Christian In spite of your sin, you are a Christian because a gracious God has provided His Son Jesus for you and you believed freely. You have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is not about being better than anybody else. It's about the grace of God, the free kindness of God. It's about a God who reaches down into moral messes and brings blessing And salvation, and that's a little mini picture of what happens in the life of every single Christian. That God came down in your mess. God came down in the midst of your ungodliness. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And in this condition, not when you were prettied up, ready to meet the Lord, but in this battered up, beat down, depraved, nasty condition, the Bible says that Jesus died for you right there. Right there. He didn't wait for you to clean your life up. We were ungodly sinners. Here's how it says it in Romans 5, verse 6. It says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For the ungodly. Those who rebelled against Him. Those who hated Him. Those who lived in opposition to Him. He died for them. Israel came from nothing, and so did we. We came from nothing. We are nothing apart from the Lord. And even after we're saved, this still remains true, that we come from nothing and we are nothing apart from the grace 
of God. We still, even to this day, we have no righteousness that we can offer God in and of ourselves. Do you really believe that about yourself? That you're not any better off in righteousness sake than you were the moment you first believed. You have no righteousness to offer God in and of yourself. You are nothing apart from the grace of God. We see a clear picture of this in Philippians chapter 3. And we get a little insight into the heart of the Apostle Paul himself. And he's been a Christian at this point for many, many years of walking with Jesus after repenting of his sins, after believing the gospel, after turning away from sin and living a godly, upright, and holy life. You know what he says in Philippians 3, verse 9, that he wants to be found by Jesus Christ. And you know what he says? In that moment where Jesus finds me, it is Paul's prayer, the Apostle Paul's prayer, that Jesus would find him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian, is that we're nothing and Jesus is everything. We never graduate past that condition. That's our song, even into eternity. And I know you believe that, Grace Community Church. We just sang that together, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. All who gather here by grace draw near. This is what we cling to. We are nothing and Jesus is everything. We have received unsearchable riches in Jesus Christ, but apart from Him, we are nothing. Brothers and sisters, I know that you believe that. And my encouragement and charge to you today is that you would never forget it. That you would remember where you came from and that you would linger often that you are nothing, you came from nothing, and you are nothing apart from the work of Christ. I'll leave you with 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. This is a reminder for us. We have this treasure, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Let's pray together. Lord, we need to know many things right now about ourselves and about Jesus, about what You've done for us. But Lord, one of the things that we need to know well and that we need to remember often, Lord, is our own sinfulness, our own unworthiness, God. And You know, God, You know us. You know our hearts. You know that we're prone to wonder, Lord. You know that very quickly our minds can get into these places where we envision earning grace, are meriting something before You. God, I pray for myself, for all the brothers and sisters here, that You would bring us low, Lord. That You would bring us low, God. That You would give us a glimpse often and reminders often, Lord, that we truly, Lord, it's true, we're nothing apart from You, God. We're not better than any other people walking planet Earth. We're, we're, our only boast is that You are gracious. All we have to bring is sin, and You are a kind and gracious God to us in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that the freeness of grace, the freeness of Your Gospel, Your kindness, Lord, would lead sinners, even in this room, to repent, to turn to You in faith, even this morning. God, I ask that You would exalt the work of Christ in our life. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.